Well, you can turn your Bibles to James chapter 5, James chapter 5, 7 through 11. Verse 7 begins, Therefore be patient, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Behold, the, the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the soil, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You too be patient, strengthen your hearts, for the, the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not groan, brothers, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brothers, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we count those blessed who persevere. You have heard the perseverance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. Last week I had to go to the dentist for a cavity. The dentist was going to fill my tooth, and so there I was, I sat in my chair with that big bright light glaring in my face and the dentist injected some painkillers and I usually, I didn't ask for a second dose this time because I, 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 I always feel the pain no matter how, how much painkiller I get. And then the dentist started to drill and the sharp, acute pain began. And it was 30 minutes of pure suffering. But what helped me get through the duress was the knowledge that I knew the filling would only take in half an hour. During that half an hour, though, there was one thing I wanted to hear from my persecutor, I, I mean my dentist. I wanted to, him to say to me this that he was almost finished. Kept waiting for him to say something. Okay, we're halfway done. Okay, ten more minutes. Five more minutes. But alas, nothing. Except the, the dentist asking the assistant for a bigger drill. But what my dentist didn't do, James does for us today. He knows life is a little bit more painful than going to the dentist. He, know that, he knows that life lasts a little bit longer than a, than a visit with your dentist. So James says, as believers suffer through the oppression inflicted by the rich and powerful, James says this, be patient, because the end is near. And when that end comes, it won't come with just the removal of pain. It will come with an exchange of perfect blessing. So being patient because the end, uh, end is near is our topic of consideration this Sunday morning. Last Sunday, uh, James went from warning wealthy Christians about their pride in chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, to warning wealthy pagans of powerful judgment in chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, 
in James' prophecy of judgment against the rich for their abusive treatment of poor believers, James was depicting a common situation in the first century world. Wealthy landowners who owned the courts who were in the bed with City Hall often stole land from poor farmers. They often withheld the pay of poverty-stricken field workers. And among this class of victims included a large number of Christians. The scattered church was being kicked around the Mediterranean like a soccer ball. So in light of this social injustice, James wrote the first six verses of chapter 5 to encourage the poor that divine justice is coming for the rich. And the certainty of that, that, of that, of that perfect justice for the church's enemies at the second, come of Christ, uh, second coming of Christ is supposed to serve as an encouragement for the saints suffering under the mistreatment of these powerful people. And if you remember the description of the punishment for these wicked, wealthy uh, people that James wrote was a description of the very worst kind of misery and torment imaginable. The rich were called to howl, in verse 1 of chapter 5, uh, to howl over the, the miseries that were about to come to them. Their gold and silver, in verse 3, would be the gasoline that would set them on fire for eternity. In verse 4, the cries of those rich plundered have reached the ears of the most powerful general in the universe, the Lord of the Sabaoth. And one day, in verse 5, their throats will be cut open, they will be cut up in pieces, and they will be thrown on an altar of fire like any sacrificial lamb was in the temple sacrificed on the day of slaughter. The righteous of God's people do not resist the rich, but one day God himself will resist on his people's behalf. And it is this certain, perfect, divine, devastating justice described in verses 1 through 6 that is the basis of the comfort given to the church in verses 7 through 11. So in light of the coming judgment of Christ on the world, the church therefore must in the meantime possess, while we wait... For that day, one particular attitude. And as we just read, James leaves us in no doubt about what he thinks this basic attitude must be. Be patient. While the rich and powerful oppress you, be patient and endure as you wait for the vindication of God. And so in verses 7 through 11, James gives us three categories of of people to help us be patient. And so he calls attention to these three classes of people, as you will see with the word behold. And this, these three categories are, number one, the patience of the farmers, the role of the judge, and the blessedness of those who persevere. Let's look at the patience of the farmer in verses 7 and 8. In light of the oppression described in verses 1 through 6, James calls the suffering saints not to pick up their AR-15s and fight back. He does not tell them to immerse themselves 
and political involvement. He doesn't tell them to protest. He doesn't tell these Christians to resist the rich in any way. He doesn't even tell them to quit their jobs or even to speak up a little, let alone start a political revolution. He is a realist, James is. He, he recognizes that for many people throughout the world, they are completely powerless against unscrupulous authorities and rulers. So James says instead, therefore, verse 7, in light of verses 1 through 6, therefore, be patient brothers. Be patient brothers. And don't get me wrong, you are free to legally do what you can to change the economic or injustice, economic injustice or, or social injustice you're under, but whatever you do that is lawful and whatever Scripture allows you to do, you must above all be patient. That is the, the default attitude every believer must have when they are being mistreated by ungodly authority. You are free to look for another job. You have the liberty to find another church. You have the freedom to start a position. You can move to another state or country. But above all of that, James says, be patient. After you give your two weeks notice, be patient. While you're selling your house to move to Florida, be patient. While you're waiting for the local news to feature your story about Fairfax, Fairfax Public Schools, be patient. And if you're hopelessly stuck in the circumstances you're in, be patient. And the meaning behind the word patient is to possess a long-suffering attitude, especially toward other people. First, the Thessalonians 5.14 uses the word when he says, when Paul says, we urge you, brothers, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. The word persevere and perseverance found in verse 11 is similar to the, in meaning. It means to exercise a strong, determined fortitude under difficult circumstances. Paul says again in 2 Thessalonians 1.4, so that we ourselves boast about you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. To put it simply, James says in this passage, while we wait for Christ's return, we are to be patient with other people and we are to endure difficulties. But praise God, hallelujah, that we don't have to be patient forever. And that our, that our, that our patience in trials have a temporal limit. Like if I was in that dentist chair and the dentist said to me as he was started to drill into my, into my lower jaw, and he said, oh, I'm sorry, Mr. Pearson. I know the secretary said 30 minutes, but it's actually going to be seven hours. I would faint. I would scream. I would say, give me, give me five more shots. In verse 7, James says that you don't have to be patient forever. Just be patient, look, until the coming of the Lord. 
In the Greek secular literature of the day, the word for coming was often used to to refer to the arrival of a king or dignitary. Here it's uh, used to refer to the final return of Jesus in kingdom glory. Uh, The entire Bible is filled with the return of Christ, by the way. If you cut your Bible, it will bleed the second coming of Christ. The New Testament contains over 300 references to Christ's return. That's one of every 13 verses. And it will be in that day when all the fortunes of of this life will be reversed. James says, be patient until the Lord returns with his kingdom. Once that day arrives, you can stop being patient. Once that day comes, you can let out a huge sigh of relief because you won't have to persevere anymore when Jesus is reigning. On that day, we can all stop persevering. On on that day, we can all stop running the marathon. We can all stop being patient. On that day, the visit to the dentist stops for all time. And as an example of this patience, James doesn't hold up the example of a soldier. In other words, we are not to take up, uh, we, we are not to take up the, the judgment of the wicked into our own hands. We are not to pick up swords and shields and storm the White House. Neither does James lift up the example of a king or a prince or a, a politician as someone to be imitated in the light of social oppression or injustice. You don't have to be that patient to be a mayor or, or a governor or a senator. Scripture over and over assumes the limitations of political participation. There's only so much a politics can accomplish. Depending on the context of where you live, political involvement does absolutely nothing, for example, if you live in North Korea. Or it can affect societal change very slowly and incrementally if you live in other countries like ours. If change happens too fast, you're probably living in a very unstable political environment. So yes, you have the freedom to lawfully participate in in political change, but the first example of patience James holds up for for us isn't a soldier or a senator, it's of all people a farmer. Look at the farmer. Think overalls, think a sweaty brow, think a dark farmer's tan. As an example of The patience we are to possess until the coming of the Lord Jesus. James says, look at the farmer, because farmers have to be patient. Every year, year after year, farmers have to be patient for a long span of time. And we get the the three of uh, the first of three beholds in 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 the second half of verse 7. James says, Behold the farmer. The farmer is the most natural illustration of patience. Jesus used the imagery of harvest to encourage waiting patiently for the day of judgment in Matthew 13. Jesus said, allow both to grow until the harvest, and in the time of the harvest I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. And so James says, can He continues in verse 7, he says, Behold, the the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the soil, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. In Palestine, the farmer was 
particularly dependent on the rain that came in the late autumn and early spring. And while the farmer waited for the harvest, he needed to exhibit patience in the meantime. There was nothing he could do to, to speed up the process of the rainfall and the subsequent har harvest, to fight against that timetable, to bite his nails, to complain about, about, about the rain not coming, to insist to have the fruit of his produce in the middle of the process would have been an exercise in utter futility. And during the, that waiting, small farmers in that time often ran out of food. There would be hunger. Sometimes shortages in the harvest meant tightening your belt for another long year. But whatever the case, the farmer had to remain patient and he had to always be ready for the harvest. The life of a first century farmer in Israel was never easy. And life for a believer suffering under the hand of the power is never easy, too. Waiting for the harvest in the midst of various trials is a painful, toilsome experience. Suffering at the hands of other people is one of the deepest kind of, of sorrow because it's so in your face. It's so personal. It's so humiliating when authorities oppress you. And, 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 and it's most, and these are the times when we're most tempted to lash out sinfully, which only makes the pain and the oppression worse. There are many tears shed waiting for the harvest, but James says that the wait is more than worth, worth it. When the harvest arrives, the farmer gets to behold, look at verse 7, the precious fruit of the soil. To the farmer, the harvest is like finding gold and silver. I've never been a farmer, but I can only imagine the joy that I would feel in the glory of a summer harvest. I mean, just living in Virginia, you know this, that you know when the spring comes after a long winter, it, it is so encouraging, right? It is so exhilarating. How much more a farmer with his very life on the line with, the, with, his, with his family's life depending on a harvest. Just imagine him as the spring comes, as the summer comes, as the farmer looks across his crops, as he walks through this abundant field of produce under the blue sky. He hears the, the birds in full chorus surround him. He looks at all the fruit and all the vegetables of his crops where for months stood a cold and barren field. All that patience exercise would be well worth it when the harvest came. John Piper said, the soul would have no rainbow if the eye had no tears. And so in verse 8, James, he, re he reiterates his call for patience. He says, you too be patient like the farmer. Look at the farmer and imitate his example. And then he adds something else, strengthen your hearts. In other words, be spiritually strong. In the midst of trial, desperately hold on to the faith once and all delivered to the saints. Fortify your heart for the long marathon struggle against sin and difficult circumstances. I heard of a, a painting in John MacArthur's office of a 
of a man, and he's on the shore in the sea, and he's on a, a little uh, a rock extending out, protruding from the sea in a raging storm. And in that rock, there's this old rugged cross, and the man is, the man is clinging to the cross as the storm sweeps over him. That's what James says to do. In your heart, as the storm of trials come, cling, cling to that, that old rugged cross in the middle of a stormy sea. But James, he adds a detail about the coming of the Lord. He says in verse 8, be patient, strengthen your hearts. And then he says this, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. That Jesus' return is a lot nearer than you think. The phrase can be translated, draw near, or to be near. And the word describes something so near that its impact is starting to be felt. The word means to be very near, not yet arrived, but still close enough for things to, to start happening. Kind of like when you get on a plane, you arrive in a city, and you're in the city, but you're, you're in a holding pattern waiting for an open terminal. And you, and you see the sense of the word in Mark 11.1 1, on the day Jesus entered Jerusalem during Passion Week. Uh, Mark 11 says this, now, when they drew near, that's the word, to Jerusalem in Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples. The point was that they were close to Jerusalem, not in Jerusalem yet, but close enough that Jesus was able to send his disciples into Jerusalem to prepare for the Passover. That's how near the coming of the Lord is. The wait isn't it as long as you think it is. Now, when I was in my dentist chair, and as my dentist was drilling his drill into my mouth, he, he didn't give me a countdown, but for the very last drill, he said, this is the last one. And when he said that, I was confident. I could get to the end. And this is what James is saying. This, brothers and sisters, the finish line, it's right there. It's right there. Don't stop running. It's right there. You just got a, a little bit to go. If, you, if I decided to do a marathon, and in the last hundred yards, all of you were there, and I was like, I can't do it. I'm done. What would you all say? <laughs> it's, it's right there. Don't give up. Just one little more. And that's what James says. He's at hand. He's standing right at the door. What do you mean? This letter was written 2,000 years ago. How can Christ's return be near when 2,000 years have elapsed since the the writing of this letter, and Jesus is still not here. This kind of perplexity about the imminency of Christ that the New Testament repeatedly reserts over and over is similar, similar to the perplexity children feel when you tell them that their 
birthday is just around the corner. And then you say, when? A month away. And they go, and they groan. Because to children, a month feels like forever because they've only lived four or five years. A month compared to four or five years lived is a significant wait. But for parents who've lived decades, a month away is just around the corner. The birthday party is at hand. Last night we were we went out to dinner and we were driving home and it was a little bit late and I said to my five-year-old, I said, Paul, when you get home, you can play for 15 minutes. And he was like, yay! And my, my wife and I, we chuckled, we giggled, and my son didn't understand why. Because 15 minutes, that's, 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 an, that's an eon. Peter addressed believers who were getting impatient about the Lord's return, who were saying, when, when, you keep saying the finish line is right there, he's not coming. Listen to 2 Peter 3, 8. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some consider slowness. Because if you're an, an eternal being, a thousand years is like one day to God. Two thousand years, that's like two days. Uh, Fourteen thousand years, that's like two weeks. The Bible says don't, don't interpret slowness according to your, your human creaturely mind. When Jesus rose from the dead, the angels were wearing these lightning uniforms and they were telling telling the women at the, at, the, at, the, at, the, at the empty tomb, Jesus is coming very soon. In the last chapter of Revelation, the Lord, Jesus, the Lord Jesus says three times in this last chapter, he says this, Revelations 22, verse 7, and behold, I am coming quickly. Revelation, Revelation 22, 12, behold, I am coming quickly. Revelation 22:20. 20, yes, I am coming quickly. He's not just coming back, he's coming quickly. From God's perspective on time, Jesus' return is like a week away. It's like two weeks away. It's that close. It's really soon. And if it was soon for James, how much more sooner is it for us? Don't stop running. Don't stop running. The finish line is right there. The Lord is at hand. He's at the door. He's standing right at the door. So in point number one, James encourages us to be patient by calling us to imitate the farmer. Point number one. And next, he does it, he does it a second way in verse 9. James reminds us of the role of the judge. Point number two, verse nine, the role of the judge. What sometimes happens when you have a bad day at work? You get home and, and sometimes you can take it out on your family. You, your, your two children are, are fighting and you groan and you grumble and you say, oh, how long will these, these children keep fighting over their toys? So it's quite natural for believers under the pressure of poverty, under the pressure of persecution, to take their frustration out against one another. When the world comes after us, 
it is an easy temptation to take it out on our families and, 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 and also on our spiritual families. And I see it all the time, you know. You had a tough day, you had a tough week at work, and you come in Friday night, and I'm teaching on something in Deuteronomy. You just, give me that look. And inside, I'm like, you had a long week, didn't you? James warns these believers what patience is not in verse 9. Do not groan, brothers, against one another. Do you not say, oh, how, how, how long will this, how long will the coffee be like this? How long will these, this, this guy keep asking me to serve? Ugh! What is your problem? I, I'm just going to avoid this person. I'm just not going to talk to so-and-so, because I'm sick of it. I'm going I'm to give this person a piece of my mind. James says, when you're doing that, you're losing your patience. That's an impatient attitude. Don't do that, verse 9, so that you yourselves may, be, may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. See, when you think Jesus is going to come in like in ages and ages, you, you, you kind of misbehave. But when you know he's coming soon, guess what? You get your act together. Sometimes my wife will go to California for a couple weeks, and the dishes will pile up in the sink. And I was like, I got time, I got time, you know. And then the day of arrival, I'm like, I got six hours, I got six hours. And then two hours away, okay, I, I better go. And, I'm, and I'm, I'm doing the dishes, right? My wife wonders, why are the dishes in a pile and why are they all wet? James says, the judge is standing right at the door. He's going to judge the world, but he's also going to judge believers. That's right. We too have to give an account for our lives. We too have to give an account of how we treated each other within the church. We won't be judged for our sins, of course. They've been paid on the cross. But we will be judged for the purpose of meeting out eternal rewards for faithful service. So if we're fighting each other, we're, that, that's robbing us of the opportunity for these eternal wards we could have gained serving one another. The judge is standing at the door. Don't, don't lose your eternal reward. Don't, don't give that up. He's, he's at the door. He's, he's knocking. He's knocking. That's how close his return is. And then James moves from the the example of the judge to fear the judge to point number three James tells us in verses 10 and 11 remember the blessedness of those who persevere before he concentrates on this blessing he returns to the to the topic he began this passage with in verse 10 reinforcing the importance of patience holding up another example of patience the prophets of the Old Testament Verse 10, as an example, brothers, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. And what a, what a fitting example of a, of a category of people to, to emulate, because all the prophets, they looked forward to the day of the Lord. 
The same day James is telling us to look forward to and to anchor our hope in Joel, Obadiah, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Zephaniah, Zechariah, Haggai, all the books that most Christians have no idea about. They all wrote about the day of the Lord and the return of Christ. Because the church ignores this huge section of the Bible, we're, we're so confused about the second coming. There was a lot of detail. There was a lot of content they wrote about this return of the day of the Lord. And so it's a fitting example for us. And, and James says they all suffered while waiting for him, while writing about him. Isaiah was cut in a saw in half. Jeremiah was put in the stocks. He was thrown in a pit. In Stephen's sermon before the Jews stoned him to death, he said this, Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And James's point in verse 10 is, is that they suffered not because they did anything wrong, but because, look, verse 10, they spoke in the name of the Lord. They suffered for their faithfulness. And they did it with class. And they did it with brave endurance. And while James holds up the prophets as an example of patient suffering, his focus, however, is on the blessing of this suffering. Look at verse 11. The third use of the word behold. Behold the farmer, verse 7, verse 9, behold the judge. And then finally, verse 11. Behold, we count those blessed who persevere. James now holds up the example of Job, but the emphasis is on the outcome of the Lord's dealing with Job. The emphasis is on the end of Job's life and how the Lord displayed, verse 11, a, a, he was this fullness of compassion and mercy. Job is the oldest book of the Bible, by the way. It was written earlier than Genesis, even though Genesis record earlier events. And the events of, of Job's life happened during the patriarchal period, right after the flood, before Israel existed. Je Job is the, is the foundational book of the Bible because it answers the question, why we need the Bible. Job tells us why the rest of, of Revelation is necessary. Job is to the Bible what the Hobbit is to the Lord of the Rings. It's this prologue. It's an introduction. And if you know, if you remember, the story of Job begins with Satan challenging God about Job's righteousness. He says, you know, this guy, he thinks, you think he's faithful, but if you, if you took away all of his blessings, he would curse you. He would, he would leave you. And so God and Satan, they have this, this, this challenge, and, and the question that runs through the entire book is this, is God right about his servant Job? Will Job fold? Will he capitulate? And whether or not Job perseveres will have implications about God's righteousness. On earth, then, Satan takes all of Job's wealth. He kills all ten children. He strikes Job with terrible boils all over his body. Will Job disown God and prove Satan right and God wrong? That's the question. And then Job's three friends come along, and they enter into a, a debate with Job about the nature of the world. 
They tried they try to define reality for Job. They, along with the rest of the world, they champion this overarching meta-narrative they believe is the main operating principle of the world. And the principle they, they advocate is the divine retribution principle. And the divine retribution principle is, is the idea that you get what you deserve. If you do good, God will reward you. If you do bad, God will punish you. And so Job, in his suffering, his argument is that the divine retribution principle, it has to be wrong because I know that I didn't do anything to deserve this. And unbeknownst to all the parties involved is that God has purposely set up an impossible situation to show that the divine retribution principle doesn't work in order to establish the principle of the gospel. The principle of the gospel that actually is the way God governs the world. And it's in the middle of Job's suffering where Job longs for the gospel principle to be true. He doesn't know for certain it's true, but he wants it to be true. He knows two things. He knows that he's not wrong about his own suffering. And he knows that God is not wrong for sending the suffering. So his dilemma is this. How can I be right and God be right both at the same time? How can a sinner be right and how can a holy God be right at the same time? And so Job, he longs for three things. He wishes for three things. He first wishes in chapter 7 that God would forgive all of his sins. He says in 721, Why then do you not pardon my transgressions and take away my iniquity? He he wishes for a second thing in chapter 9. He longs for a mediator. A mediator. He says in verse 32 to 33, For he is not a man as I am, that I may answer him, that we may go to court together. I can't enter into God's courts. I'm not God. Uh, I, I don't know some, some type of e- eternal being that can do, do that. There is no umpire between us who may lay his hand upon us both. There, there's no God who could go into uh, God's courts, and there is no man who can take my hand to bring me into that court. He, he, he wants a, a God-man mediator. And the third thing Job wishes for is a resurrection in chapter 14. If a man dies, will he live again? And so Job wishes for this, the forgiveness of sins through a God-man mediator who will raise him from the dead. And that's the gospel. Job wishes for this principle of the gospel to rule the world because he knows the divine retribution principle doesn't work. Job is thinking this, if I knew that my first sins were forgiven, then I could be certain that I wasn't being punished for being a sinner in this moment. If I had a mediator, I could be certain that my sins could be forgiven. If there was a resurrection, then I would be certain that even though I'm suffering now, one day in the future, God will make it all right again. And I could, I could, I could deal with this. See, if I knew for sure there was the principle of the gospel ruling the world, then I could be certain that that I'm right about my present situation, that I'm not being punished for my sins, unlike unlike what my friends think, while also being certain that God is right in sending my suffering. 
You see, only the, the principle of the gospel that runs the world can explain Job's reality. This is what Job longs for in the book of Job for, for 40 chapters. And this is why Job is the perfect prologue to the Bible, because Job's wishes and desires shows why you need the rest of the Bible. You need the rest of the Bible to, sh to demonstrate there is indeed a gospel principle that, that is the infrastructure behind the world. And so James says, let's, let's look at the end of Job's suffering in Job 42. Turn there with me. Go to Job 42, the last chapter of Job. It's the, Job is right, for, right before the book of Psalms. And the question we're all waiting for is, does, does Job get what he wished for? Does Job get what he wished for? What is, according to James, the outcome of the Lord's dealings with Job that prove the Lord is full of compassion and mercy? Does Job get what he wished for? Well, almost, almost. Look at first what God establishes is, is that he's right. That he can't be impugned for injustice. That what, the suffering he sent was, a, was, was, out, was from a righteous God. And Job realizes that in verses 1 through 6. He says in verse 6, Therefore I reject myself and I repent in dust and ashes. The times that I thought, I the times I doubted your goodness and your righteousness, I repent from that. So Job affirms the righteousness of God in verses 1 through 6. But in verses 7 and 8, God affirms that Job is right too. Look what he says. Verse 7, now it happened after Yahweh had spoken these words to Job, that Yahweh said to Eliphaz the Temanite, my anger burns against you and against your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant has. My, my servant was right. And at the end of verse 8, I will accept him that I may not do with you according to your folly because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant has. Job is right. Number two, God atones for the sins of Job's friends. Verse 8, so now take for yourselves seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves and my servant will, Job will pray for you and I will accept him so that I, that I may not do with you according to your folly. That, that phrase, I may not do with you according to your folly is a very strong Hebrew phrase to connote the... I want to destroy you in the worst way, but I won't. Because Job will be your mediator because of atoning sacrifice. You will be forgiven because of that. And next, Job has lost, what Job lost in the beginning is restored twofold in the end. Look at verse 10. Yahweh restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends and Yahweh increased all that Job had twofold. Twofold. Then all his brothers came and sisters who had known come to him. They ate bread with him in his house and they consoled him and comforted for all the calamity that 
Yahweh had brought on him, and each one gave him one kesita and each a ring of gold. And Yahweh blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep. In, the, in chapter 1, he had 7,000 sheep, 6,000 camels. In chapter 1, he had 3,000 camels. 1,000 pairs of oxen, he had 500 earlier. 1,000 female donkeys, he had 500 in chapter 1. Twofold. And this, then, verse 13, something strange. He also had seven sons and three daughters. But he had ten children in the beginning. Why not double? Why not double the children? Why break the pattern? Well, for starters, you, you just can't replace dead children with ten living children. It doesn't work that way. Even double the amount of children can't make up for the loss of ten children. So why break the pattern of this twofold restoration? Well, there, there actually is a way, there is a way to make up for the personal loss of your ten children while doubling the number of children. There is a way to take away all of Job's sorrow in exchange for pure joy while at the same time doubling the number of children. How do you do that? How does God do that? Through a resurrection. When Job meets his first ten children risen from the dead. And then in verse 13 and 14, in 14 it says, remember in this day and age, the focus is on sons, on, on having male children. But in verse 14 and 15, Job focuses on the three daughters. And he named the first daughter Jemima, and the second daughter Keziah, and the third Karen Hapuk. These, these names all deal with, uh, mean some type of beauty. Verse 15, now in all the land no women were found so beautiful as Job's daughters, and, and their father gave them inheritance among their brothers. This is this is very interesting. These beautiful daughters. See, in the Bible's daughters are portrayed as a portrait of grace and beauty. They reflect the glory of their mother. And as daughters are, grow and they're cultivated, they gain a quiet spirit. The Bible describes women as gentle and full of virtue and glorious. They, they're supposed to shine forth as beautiful femininity, and, and, and God intended these three daughters to be a glorious possession of Job. God intended them to be a portrait of grace and beauty to enter into this scarred man's life. You see, be, Job is still, he, he's still scarred from head to toe. He still feels the loss of his children and the suffering he, he endured. There are scars all over his body. There are, there are scars that line the inward of his heart. And he probably told himself, while he was suffering, while he had nothing, he probably told himself he would never see beauty again. He would never experience blessing ever. And God says here at the end, you know what, Job, you're wrong. So how does the story of Job end? What is James talking about? Well, what we can gather from these verses at the end of Job is yes, we see God's fullness of compassion and mercy. 
And it's this very compassionate, compassion and mercy shown at the end of Job that he's right, that there's, a, there's an atonement, there's a twofold restoration, there are these implications of resurrection, there's beauty, there's this very compassion and mercy shown at the end of Job's life leads us to believe that God will fulfill all of Job's wishes. Verse 17, Then Job died, an old man full of days, And then all that he wished for, at the beginning of the book, he receives in full. And then the rest of the story of Scripture is launched forward. And 2,000 years later, Paul writes this in the book of Romans, Romans 3.26, that he would be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What do you know? Paul tells us that because of the gospel, God is right and sinful man is right. Romans 8.34, Christ is he who died, yes, rather he was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. What do you know? Paul tells us about a perfect mediator. Romans 6.4, Christ was raised from the dead. Wow, there's a resurrection. And then Paul finally finishes this treatise on the gospel in Romans 11 when he says, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his ways, for who has known the mind of the Lord, or who became his counselor, or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And in these words, Paul quotes Job. He quotes Job. And that's not a coincidence. It's as if Paul looks back 2,000 years ago and he says, Job, remember when you were suffering. Remember all that you desired and all that you wished for. Job, all of it has come true in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then James says in 5.11 to comfort these suffering these suffering believers under the the powerful hand of the rich, he says, you have heard of the perseverance of Job, and you have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings. You've seen the telos, the very end, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. This is what James is saying. If Job can persevere on a wish, you can persevere on Job's wish fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. You can be patient. If Job can be patient, you can be patient. And the dentist last week told me he was finished. Oh, that felt good. I let out a sigh of release. And then the dentist told me this. Mr. Pearson, this filling might keep you from needing a root canal. I was thinking in my mind, I I might need a new dentist. You see, in a fallen world, the suffering that ends, it's just temporary before a filling turns into a root canal. But when Christ returns, you will never cry again. So be patient. 
when the authorities of this world try to crush you. Be patient because of the coming of the Lord. Be patient because of the coming of the Lord is at hand. He's knocking at the door. And be patient because the coming of the Lord will be blessed and beautiful like the beauty of Job's three daughters.